This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Next on Plains FM, it's Addictive Eaters Anonymous On Air. Welcome to Addictive Eaters Anonymous on Air, here on Plains FM. My name's Louise and I'm an Addictive Eater and the host of this show. This is an opportunity to share with you about how Addictive Eaters Anonymous works and to talk with an Addictive Eater who will share their experience of recovery from Addictive Eating. Well, how does AEA work? Sobriety in AEA is freedom from Addictive Eating and all mind-altering substances. AEA members achieve sobriety by sharing their experience, strength and hope with each other and living the 12-step programme of recovery as a way of life by regular attendance at meetings, getting a sponsor, working the steps, keeping in contact with sober members and carrying the message of recovery. Members are freed from addictive eating and the obsession with food. At the heart of the AEA programme is the spiritual concept of surrender. I have the pleasure today of interviewing Pamela, and it's by Zoom because she's all the way in Birmingham, is that right? I now live in Glasgow, Louise, Scotland. (laughs) Pamela, I'm really excited to be able to have an opportunity to talk to you about your continuing recovery and addictive eaters anonymous and when I think about your story I think it must have been hard for you to know there was something wrong with your eating when in fact your sister was eating the same way you were. Yes that's a a valid point Louise. I grew up in a family where food was love Food was in abundance. We never had to ask for food. And the more I ate, the more it was normal for me. And um, yes, my sister, my sister would eat at night. She would wake up in the middle of the night and need food. I liked my sleep too much. I was the type of addictive eater who ate so much that the food anaesthetized me and was like a sleeping pill. And uh, I slept a lot with large stomachs of food and sugar and stodge. But yeah, the two of us, we didn't eat great piles of food together, but we talked about food a lot together but she did her own type of secret eating and I did my own type of arrogant, openly openly eating, put it that way. And so did your parents ever say to you, Pamela, there's something odd about the way you're eating? Was Was it pointed out to you that something wasn't quite right? Not at first, more so in my teens. I 
joined my career at the age of 18. In my younger years, it was just cute. In my younger years, because food was love, particularly to my mother, it was encouraged and almost force-fed. You know, you don't leave the table until you've eaten every drop of food. And even in days of scarcity, which weren't often, we were fed traditional food of, <laughs> it sounds awful, pilchards and uh, white rice. When my mom and dad, it got to the end of the week, and they didn't have much money, it came down to tin pilchards and white rice. And I remember my sister and I complaining about that all the time and disliking it intensely and playing around with our food so that when I wasn't looking, my sister detested it so much that she would scrape half of her food onto my plate so that I would eat all this disgusting pilchards and white rice. My memories of eating and my parents becoming upset with me are when I came home at night. So say I would come home from Girl Guides or Brownie and I would be in downstairs by myself pretending to do homework and the aroma of bacon being fried and toast being made as a midnight snack would reach the upstairs and my dad would look over the stairs balcony and in his Jamaican accents would say, Pom, are you eating this late at night? He would say that to me. And I would feel so, I was I was so full of rage when I was caught out. So yes, early teens, my dad, it was my dad that picked up on it. And he would have this irritating habit of coming home from work in the afternoon and catching me eating toast in the kitchen. I was a latchkey kid. I came home and my job was to set the table for dinner when mom and dad came home. The next person home was dad and I was always stuffing toast when dad came home. And he said to me on this one particular occasion, Pam, make me some toast. And I was so full of rage that he caught me. I said, there's no more bread. And he looked at me with disgust, really, and absolute incredulously, he opened up the bread bin and there was the loaf of bread. I was so obsessed with eating and stuffing down my feelings that I lied to my dad. And I was so easily found out. And then, again, he would check the fruit bowl. In our house, the fruit bowl was stacked with fruit on a Saturday afternoon after mom had done the shopping at the local market, at the local fruit market. And by Saturday night, Sunday night, that fruit bowl was half emptied because I'd eaten a lot, the sweet bananas, the sweet mangoes. I couldn't help it, Louise. And my dad would come and check on me in the lounge. And the first thing he looked at was the fruit bowl. And he would just, that look of disgust. I'm intrigued that on one hand you could see or you had this feeling that food was love. And yet on the other hand, you sort of knew 
that you were somehow stuffing down feelings with food? Yes, absolutely. Food is love. My parents were from the Caribbean. They came here in the late 50s. They were part of the British Empire. They were taught that the mother country had the jobs and they came over. Now, my parents were quite well off in the Caribbean, but when they came here, they came here illiterate and they started from the bottom rung of everything, but they did really, really well. My parents were black Jamaicans and they bought their own house, you know, before the indigenous white population bought their own house. So here we were, a family of four, living in our own house, and they wanted to give their British children, born in England, the best of everything. So my mother was the feeder. She was the one who piled food on the plate. And my father did it too, until he noticed we were growing in size, and the food was going rather quickly from everywhere. And the midnight snacks were, were, you know, five days a week. It was no longer fun. And my dad pointed it out. So when I left home at 18 and a half and I joined my job and I would come home to see my parents regularly because my job was only 20 miles away, the first thing I did as soon as I walked into the house, was going to the kitchen and say, what's there to eat? And my dad said, there's something wrong with you. How come every time you come here, you head straight for the kitchen? Meanwhile, my mom loved seeing her children and just didn't pay attention to it. But my dad knew, he picked up on it. And so part of this disease often people talk about a feeling of not fitting in or, or, or being different. Did you have that, Pamela, because you seem like a, a, an incredibly friendly and sort of extroverted person, did, did you feel different or unable to express yourself at all? I felt a little different. I, my, I felt that... I had to be liked by everybody. That was my main character defect, Louise. Because of my great smile, I, and because of the fact that my mother was a big hostess, we belonged to a church community, and every Sunday, the pastor of the church, his wife, his five kids, the next door neighbors, my mom, my dad, my, me, my sister, we all had these lavish meals on Sunday. So I learned how to be hospitable, how to be, you know, vivacious and sociable. But inside, inside, I did not know I was enough. Inside, I felt fat, humongous, rage. Children were to be seen and not heard. I was brought up with strict rules about not answering back. And so... Yeah, there was a wanting and a lacking inside of me too. And that's why I ate. Even though I smiled, and I do still smile today, but my motives are different today. Mm. I know that I am enough. So can you sort of describe the progression of the disease in you? How did you end up coming to a 
a food fellowship for people with food addiction. What what was the what was the journey there? Yes. So I joined my career at eighteen and a half, and it's I was out in the world by myself. I was paying my own bills. I was with my peers, living in uh, women's only quarters. I joined a job that was unique for a young black British woman. I joined a job that was mainly male orientated. And here I was trying to make it in the world. But I had been sheltered and cocooned in my family home. And so it was hard. And the illness is progressive. So as a child, I ate and it was harmless and I was running around the playground. But as an adult, here I was in the working world and still eating and the anxiety and the lack and the trying to please people just formed an even bigger hole. And I was trying to fill it with the only way I knew, which was to eat and to drink. But eating was my favourite, you know, stodgy, greasy, sweet, gooey, anaesthetising food, you know, just took away the pain of growing up and of independence. It's easy now. I see how easy it is to have the instant hit from delicious food. Couldn't stop eating. And so hearing about that in a emptiness that empty space I've heard this disease described as a spiritual malady did you have any sort of desire for connection with a higher power where were you spiritually at that time I had been brought up in a Pentecostal happy clappy church and we played tambourines and drums and I had a quiet knowing when the preacher said that God was a jealous God I didn't believe him I thought to myself if God is a loving God and has created this beautiful universe and me even though I have self-loathing I knew that the God of my understanding wasn't quite what the preacher said But I didn't reject the church. I knew that there was an answer there. But how would this God that I'd been brought up to believe in really be interested in me? You know, isn't he too busy? Isn't it too busy? So I loved the idea of a God, but I didn't quite understand. And I certainly didn't know that this God of my understanding would be interested in my size or my self-loathing. So I was shamed. I was shamed. I was 325 pounds, which is an enormous weight. I was in my career. The doctors were telling me, I remember going to an ear, nose and throat specialist at one stage. I was beginning to snore because of my size. And the ear, nose and throat specialist said to me, "Mm, what about your car suspension? Can't you lose weight just for that? I'll never forget the scorn on his face. And the embarrassment, you know, that I felt. But I'm lucky because... I eventually met a GP, a general 
practitioner who had heard of the fellowships and directed me into the fellowship. And so the first day in 1993, when I came into the fellowships, I saw the word God and it didn't faze me. I was just enthused with, okay, so somebody teach me how to get God to help me lose weight. Because of course, when I first walked into the fellowship, I didn't know that eating was an illness. I didn't know it was a problem. I just thought it was my weight. How do I eat like normal people and be slim? I was pleased. When I saw the word God, I thought, well, I know I've tried everything else. And we haven't even mentioned all of the well-renowned dietitians and diets in the market. Tried them all. Counselors, antidepressants, and none of them worked for me. So here was the word God. And I thought, okay, I've exhausted everything else. Teach me how to do it with God. And so can you describe then what what happened? There's obviously been a transformation. You're not eating. So how is that, Pamela? What, what happens? So I came into the fellowships and I did my best. But I knew that for the first 15 years of being in the fellowship, I hadn't quite got it right. So I eventually met a woman who walked into the meeting of Addictive Eaters Anonymous. She was confident. She was good looking. She was, an, she was international. And she talked about freedom from not just the eating, but freedom from the obsession with the food. She talked about freedom from the pills that I was taking to try and control my weight. And most of all, she talked about complete joy, joy without food. And I was attracted to that lady and I chased after her. And she helped me to start to see the simple and very effective solution that Addictive Eaters Anonymous offers. And so she gave me a food plan. I was so happy to have a food plan. At last, here was someone who was telling me what to eat. Because at this stage, I just did not know how to eat and what to eat. So here was this woman who became my sponsor, telling me how to eat, what to eat, and when to eat. And I could have kissed her feet. <laughs> I was so for someone to help me with this problem. Yes. And then, of course, you know, our favorite book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, says when I stopped eating, when I stopped drinking and using drink and food, then I need to get down to my roots and causes. And I needed a power greater than myself for me to find a way of living life that did not revolve around food and drink and antidepressants. And the big book makes it clear that I have to replace my way of life with a power greater than myself. So here it was, Louise, here is the answer to all my problems. Instead of me trying to make things work, why don't I try the only thing that's left, which is a power greater than myself? Sometimes I call it God, Sometimes I call it divine intelligence. Sometimes I call it spirit of the universe. I know not what it is. It's beyond human comprehension. 
But the way it um, evolved for me was I was on a food plan. I was driving to work. My work had taken off. I had the best job in the world as far as I was concerned. My bosses started to notice me. But my head, my head was still full of self-loathing, even though I had this food plan. And there was a voice. There was a voice, a quiet voice that said to me, either God is everything or else he is nothing. What's your choice, Pamela? Now, by this stage, I had been ringing much more sober members. I would be ringing three or four people who were in sobriety 20, 30 years. And every day they'd been saying the same thing to me. Pamela, forget yourself. You've already got a sponsor. You've got to help other people. And find a power greater than yourself. Go deeper. Dig deep into the quiet the quietness of life, the stillness of life, where the real power comes from. So on my, work, my way to work one day, when my head was still full of what's the boss going to think? I hope my colleagues have noticed what I did. I hope I get the best car to drive from the carpool. These silly little things were plaguing my mind. What do people think of me? And the voice came in saying, Pamela, you must believe in a power greater than yourself. And immediately, as I was driving to work, I decided, yes, I'm going to stop playing. I'm going to really start cultivating a relationship with God, with the divine intelligence. I'm going to act as though it really is concerned about me and how I help others, you know. And that's where it started for me. And I visited my sponsor and she helped me to go further with the quiet meditation and with the relationship with God. And it's just grown from there. And it's like having a best friend who is with me all day long, who encourages me to breathe, relax, take it easy, enjoy, have joy. Don't take yourself too seriously. It's like you've got that best friend on your shoulder whispering this stuff every day. Now, that best friend for me cannot be neglected like any best friend, like my marriage. It can't be neglected. It doesn't grow by itself. So I spend time, a few moments each day, nothing big, nothing major, cultivating and growing that relationship with that power and where i live now in up in the north of uh in the south of scotland um which is glasgow the city i wake up i love early morning meditation i wake it's dark now because we're into the autumn and the winter and so i'll wake up at a, a very early hour sit in this armchair open up the books, my spiritual books, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll read just one or two sentences and then I'll breathe and I will start to meditate, think, talk, listen to God, to the spirit of the universe. That just keeps growing and growing. At the same time, Pamela, as the 
sort of circular thinking, the old thinking, is that disappearing? Is it, is it quiet? Is your mind quieter now? Oh, my goodness. Yes, Louise. So what has happened is that self-loathing, that wanting to please, that being bothered, that me first, me first, that self-centered, I hope I get, has dissolved slowly. It has been replaced by a quietness, a confidence, a knowing. Most of all, it's I now know for sure that there is no other. There's no they. There's only we and us and togetherness. It's as though sobriety, stopping eating, and forming a relationship with God has calibrated me into, integrated me into the universe, into the world where there's no more separateness. Uh, and I'm no longer clinging to my identity, you know, believing I've got to make up this false personality so that I fit in. So, yeah, a quieter head. And of course, I still have to pay the bills. I still have to have a relationship with my friends and with my husband. And I'm very much into the fellowship of Addictive Eaters Anonymous. I'm still challenged by the weather and people who disagree with me. But these days, I don't take myself so seriously. And I rely upon divine intelligence to know what it's doing. It's not down to me. It's, it's lovely to hear that it's you nice know, actions that you've taken. Um, you haven't gone away to a cave in the Himalayas. You haven't separated yourself from life. You have just carried on in life and, in fact, turned outward rather than that inward focus. And yet, somehow, still, there is that connection with the inner the best of both worlds, really. I believe so. I really, really do. I've often read books where it talks about this. It's, you know, there are, there are some people who find sobriety and withdraw from society, believing that meditation and sitting quietly all by themselves is what this is all about. Whereas I have always believed, known that, I, I, I want to use the word responsibility, but it's, it's a bit of a heavy word. I enjoy still being a neighbor, a friend, a member of AEA. Uh, I, we have a business, you know, my husband and I are more in love and are more invested in the business world than ever before. And I, it's just got better. And it seems like time expands and stretches. And I do believe that the universe, God himself, divine intelligence, if I keep sharing this miracle, I really believe that God, the universe, replenishes me and helps me to receive more than I could ever have asked for. That is my experience in this program.
So Pamela, if there's someone listening and they've identified with the eating and the unmanageable life and the feeling of emptiness within, what's, what would you say to them? What should they do? I would say if you are really, really ready to stop using food, can you really, are you really craving a life that's free of supermarkets, searching for the hit, searching for um, the stodge? I was just ready to be empty. I was ready to face life without food, without drink, without antidepressants and painkillers. I was ready to do life on life's terms. So desperate. You have to be really, really desperate. And I was desperate. Plus, accepting help. This is a program about diminishing the ego, putting away my, yes, but I'm a strong, independent woman or, or person. It's about admitting, well, maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe there is a way out. And the, but the most important thing is it's such a simple program. So simple, miraculously simple, that it can be unbelievable at times. So, yeah, I would encourage people to come to the meetings do a whole lot of listening. There is no register that you have to sign. There is no commitment to make. It's free. Come to the meetings. See if you really identify with the desperation to want to give up the food. And then just ask for help. It is that simple. Thank you so much, Pamela. It has been so delightful and joyful being able to talk with you and listen to you. Louise, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to tell my story. I love sharing it. Thank you. Thank you. If you have heard anything today which you've related to or would like to know more about us, please go to our website, www.aeanz.org. There are three meetings a week in Christchurch as well as a monthly worldwide meeting on Zoom. A podcast of our show will be available on iTunes and Spotify, as well as the Plains FM website, plainsfm.org.nz. Our show goes out on the fourth Monday of each month at midday. Thank you for listening, and I trust you go well. Until we catch up next month on Addictive Eaters Anonymous on air, Plains FM 96.9.